This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Our guest is Arthur Piccolo. Arthur, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. Arthur Piccolo is chairman of the Bowling Green Association in Lower Manhattan. Uh, Arthur, what is Bowling Green? Well, Bowling Green is where New York City was founded. Bowling Green is absolutely the most historic place in New York City, and it's a place that um, I've devoted quite a bit of my time and energy um, beginning in the early 1980s when I first arrived down here. I was working at a, a company nearby, and like a lot of people, I would come during the warmer weather and have my lunch in the park and being interested in history all my life um, I quickly became familiar with the fact although I hadn't been previously although I'm a lifelong New Yorker that Bowling Green in fact was the first park in mm-hmm. New York City of course I went on and got more deeply into it and uh, came to the realization that Bowling Green is the first public park in the United States. It's also the place where New York City was founded. It's also intimately involved with the um, American Revolution. It's where the first Jews arrived in America. It's um, it's where the, um, the St. Patrick's Day Parade had its beginning. There's just a tremendous amount of history, and I became wrapped up in it. The the interesting thing is, and what got me involved was, and I think this speaks to the the dynamic nature of of history. It's a it's a it's a living subject. I was disappointed by two things sitting in the park early in the 1980s. That even though this was such a historic place, it was not being well maintained by the city. There were absolutely no lights. It was completely dark at night. And one of my favorite parts of the year, Christmas. Although at that point, in the early 80s, New York City was putting, doesn't do this anymore, was putting quite a few Christmas trees around the city in different parks, small Mm -hmm. and large. It did not put a Christmas tree in Bowling Green. So I started a campaign to convince the Parks Department to put a Christmas tree of some sort in the park in each December. And for a number of years, I tried and I failed until um, a previous Manhattan Park commissioner said to me, if you're that interested in um, doing a Christmas tree, we will give you permission. They gave me the royal permission to go out there <laughs> and see if I could raise funds and and find a way to put up a Christmas tree. And I did for the first time in 1986. And as a result of that, it wasn't even my idea. Some people came to me and said, hey, why don't you form an organization and do things at Bowling Green and take care, try to take care of Bowling Green year-round. And that was the genesis of the Bowling Green Association. Has it kind of come to dominate your life? I mean, the, the Bowling well, Green... Well, at times it certainly does, um, because there's a, there, there are challenges, there are issues, there's, um, there, there are so many aspects of the area to celebrate. And uh, yeah, at times it absolutely does. And of course, we've had incidents along the way. Um, involving, you know, charging bull and other matters that have been um, all-consuming at times. So, but I'm fascinated. I'm happy. I'm proud to be this involved with Bowling Green. And you know, I, to my knowledge, I don't think that anyone else previously has devoted mm-hmm. as much time and energy specifically to Bowling Green throughout its history than I have done over the last thirty years now. Was Bowling Green ever a Bowling Green? Yes. Well, that's why it became a park. 
Um, first of all, it was the area. It was always the center of the um, of the early city. In fact, I have a screensaver on my computer, which is a map from uh, 1644 as New Amsterdam. And, and you know, there was no doubt that the dominant part, even when this was a small trading post, the dominant place was, in fact, what would become Bowling Green, because this is where the fort was built. The most prominent structure in the colony was the fort, first mm -hmm. Fort Amsterdam, and it's where the the Dutch soldiers were, it's where the Dutch, uh, you know, director general was, it was where all the important official acts took place. So that area right in front of the fort was, in effect, it was the town square of New Amsterdam, and it was where people congregated, it was where the market was held. In fact, even the first well to get water, fresh water, was here at Bowling Green. So it maintained its status as the important central focus of public activity. What happened in 1733 was mm -hmm. that colonists wanted, even though we had, I mean, millions, tens of millions of acres, you know, across the land surrounding it, the idea if you think about it, of having a public park was rather ridiculous back in 1733 and why there weren't any other official right. public parks. What happened is the colonists who had, they had one sport that they played and enjoyed, and it was lawn bowling. So they went to the council, which is, which is today's, it was then called the Common Council. Today it's the City Council. It's the same body that was created in 1653 here at Bowling Green. But they went to the city council and said, you know, we, we would like you to create a public space and maintain it here at the, at the area, which was still in front of the fort, you know, then Fort James. And, and the city said, well, it's a great idea, but we don't have any funds to do it. So as a result, three local business leaders told the city council that uh, we will pay the cost of creating this man, this park area, this, this this manicured lawn space, where people could congregate nicely and also play lawn bowling, and and they basically did it. They paid for it and they maintained the park. And as a result, on March 12, 1733, the Common Council did in fact create Bowling Green Park, the mm -hmm. first public, officially designated public park. In America, and is that where they uh, the merchants or the businessmen had to pay the peppercorns for rental? Well, well, that wasn't the issue in terms of the peppercorn was a commonly used term back in colonial times. But the peppercorn issue was the fact that uh, this wonderful um, uh, story is that the way that the city um, basically compensated symbolically these three businessmen was that it in effect, gave them a peppercorn annually. Um, I have taken up that, that wonderful story, and the only award that the Bowling Green Association gives out is the peppercorn award. <laughs> you know, this in the same right. symbolism, a symbolic way of recognizing the achievements of others in and around sure. Bowling Green. What, what is a peppercorn? Peppercorn, it's, it's, a, it's a coin. It's like it's pepper. It's pepper. It's the corns that out of which you get make pepper. Oh, it gets ground okay. down into pepper. On February 2nd, 1653, is the date that I constantly celebrate and others celebrate as the founding of New York City. The New York City flag previously had on it for many years uh, 1654 as the founding date. That's the date the British took over and the Dutch left. 
um, Paul, oh, the late Paul O'Dwyer, who was vehemently anti-British and who was a leader in the council back in the 1970s, had that date changed to 1625, right, which is basically a somewhat nebulous date um, where, you know, there's a lot of controversy about this. That is when the first settlers arrived. But what happened on February 2nd, 1653, right here at Bowling Green in the fort, is that New Amsterdam, which had nothing been nothing more than a trading outpost for the Dutch West India Company, became a city, not only a city, but the first self-governing city in America with a charter, which and, and with local citizens became members of what was initially the Common Council. And that is the date. That is the founding. That is when New Amsterdam, which then became New York, came into being. And... Uh, and in fact, I have a stamp in front of me from um, 19, a, a U.S. postal stamp from 1953, which was celebrated as the 300th anniversary of the founding of New York City on February 2nd, 1653. But the following year, the following year, the very first, and, and again, this is symbolic of so many of the different ethnic groups that first came to New York. First, of course, they came. This was a multi, multicultural place, New Amsterdam. But in 1654, in September 1654, the first Jews ever, ever to set foot in North America came here to Bowling Green. 23 Jews fleeing persecution in Portuguese, Brazil, Mm -hmm. um, were on a ship that stopped here on its way to Europe, and they got off the ship and decided they wanted to stay here and create a colony, and they did. And they've created the first congregation in America, Sheriff Israel. All right, so that happened here. So many other things mm-hmm. of that nature happened. And I do need to interrupt you, Arthur, for a short break. We'll be back in a moment with uh, Arthur Piccolo, chairman of the Bowling Green Association in Lower Manhattan. You're listening to the Historian's Podcast. We depend on your uh, contributions to keep us on the Internet. Uh, we have a website uh, on uh, GoFundMe, a popular fundraising site gofundme.com forward slash 2019 dash the dash historians you can also uh, in addition to contributing online just send a check in the mail make the check out to me bob cudmore and send to bob cudmore at 125 horstman drive scotia new york 12302 We're talking with uh, Arthur Piccolo, who's chairman of the Bowling Green Association in Lower Manhattan. You just uh, mentioned the arrival of the uh, first Jews in North America in 1654, uh, and that this is where they landed in the area of uh, Bowling Green, and that they had started the first synagogue. in uh, recent years, I believe you were probably instrumental in arranging to have an historic marker placed uh, at the site of that synagogue? Yes, what happened was that the first 23 Jews who came to you, led by their rabbi, Asher Levy, formed a congregation, Cherith Israel, but they did not have a synagogue. They met in homes um, of, of, of their own, and that's where they had their services. But it was in 1730 that their descendants, the the few generations later, built a synagogue on what is South William Street. And and James Kaplan, 
president and co-founder of the Low Manhattan Historical Association with me, deserves the majority of credit, and you've had him on your show. Um, he, for many years, has said, you know, there, there's this important place on South William Street where the first synagogue in America stood beginning uh, and was open on April 8th, 1730. And, and, you know, it doesn't get the acknowledgement it deserves. And he was responsible for convincing the New York City Council to co-name South William Street, you know, in honor of the first synagogue. Um, Mm -hmm. And then he deserves all credit for that. But as a result of what he did, I was inspired to say that we should do even more. We should have a plaque on South William Street. And we were able to successfully do that. There is the, the, the South William side of 75 Broad Street, um, right in the area where the first synagogue stood. Yes, on, on September 6th, we dedicated a permanent plaque that will forever um, be there, and people will always be able to see that the first synagogue in America was on South William mm-hmm. Street. And uh, I hope uh, we can now advance to the story I brought up a while ago about the statue of King George III. Uh, when did the British put that up? And, and again, I, uh, in leading up to that, though, I can t- say one more thing of importance because it relates directly to that. Um, the first St. Patrick's Day parade took place here in Lower Manhattan at Bowling Green on March 17th, 1762. And why that happened was that, you know, Irishmen were being conscripted into the British Army. They didn't want to do it. They were basically hijacked, and they were made into mm-hmm. British soldiers and sent to America. And in an incredible act of, you know, we think of the St. Patrick's Day play as just a positive, joyous celebration of Irish culture, which it is. But that first parade, which was a march, which was soldiers wearing green, which was outlawed in Britain, and excuse me, in Ireland, for for Irish to use the color green. These soldiers basically marched and promenaded up and down Lower Broadway from Bowling Green, from the fort where they were stationed, and did that. And that was an act of, it was an act of celebration of the Feast of St. Patrick, but it was also an act of defiance. In fact, it was, and and obviously the local colonists joined in, particularly Irish, Hercules Mulligan, most notable of all. And this was the first open act of defiance anywhere in the colonies um, of British rule. And they got away with it, right? There was no repercussions, which was interesting, I think. So that led, in my, in the symbolically, from there to what you want to talk about now, which was July, you know, 1776, here at Bowling Green with that famous, I, I call it, and I think it deserves to be called, the single most famous moment in the history of Bowling Green. The, the Declaration of Independence, of course, signed on July 4th, 1776 in Philadelphia. Copies of it um, given to riders who, by horse, were bringing copies to the various cities, of course, including New York City, where at that point George Washington and his colonial troops were stationed and a copy of the Declaration of Independence arrived here on July 9th, 1776. And George Washington had the Declaration read um, up and down Lower Broadway. In defiance and in celebration, colonists that evening marched down Broadway. Again, I have to keep mentioning his name because he's a wonderful figure from history. Hercules Mulligan. They marched to the park and tore down the most hated statue 
ever in America. It was known throughout the colonies, a gilded statue of King George III on horseback. Now, the backstory to that is that in 1770, it was the New York colonists who asked the British to put up a statue of the king because um, they were for a short time, you know, back in favor with the colonists. Um, and after the Stamp Act had been repealed, um, and but by the following year, 1771, the colonists in New York were being rebellious again towards British rule, and they were starting to deface and vandalize the statue. Mm-hmm. The British put up a fence around the same fence, the same size fence, with uh, parts of it are original, parts of it are not today. It is a National Historic Landmark, the fence itself. They put up the fence and locked off the park in 1771 to prevent the colonists from defacing and vandalizing the statue. So on July 9th, what happened was they finally liberated the park. The colonists liberated the park by breaking through the locks, going into the middle of the park, and destroying the statue of George III. I tell a story which, you know, I have read, it may or may not have accuracy to it, but it's a wonderful story, and I hope it's true, that that evening, after the colonists had had destroyed the statue and had left to celebrate at Florence's Tavern, George Washington, by himself, rode down to Bowling Green to see what the colonists had done at Bowling Green and tethered his stallion to the fence and walked around inside Bowling Green with the with the pieces of the statue of the King of England around his feet and right mm. offshore the deck lanterns of the largest armada ever assembled, 133 warships twinkling in the harbor and he's standing there with the statue of the king destroyed and also knowing that offshore were British troops that were going to come on shore sooner or later, and they were probably going to execute him for treason. Mm. Well, that didn't happen, but the the British controlled New York City for a good part of the American Revolution or until it was over, but then they evacuated, and it's called Evacuation Day, and uh, Bowling Green figures in that? Well, it figures very much so. So, again, when we have July 9, 1776, with or without George Washington's presence afterwards, certainly the destruction of the statue was real. And that was the first official act. You know, obviously there had been, there was Concord and Lexington, and there were, there were encounters before that. But until the Declaration of Independence on July 4th, it was just sort of a insurrection. It was not a rebellion. The first act against the British following the, the, the signing of the Declaration was what took place here with the destruction of the statue, an act of rebellion. But then what you're talking about, eight years later, George Washington absolutely did return to Bowling Green because in November 1783, the only British flag still flying left in America, obviously after the, the end of the hostilities and the American victory at Yorktown, he came into New York with the remnants of the Continental Army and proudly rode into New York City and down Broadway to basically witness the fact that the last British troops left in America left here on November 25th, 1783, from the fort at Bowling Green. And they left that last British flag still frying from the flag, the prominent flagpole here at Bowling Green. And George Washington came here and watched the last British flag in America being lowered 
and being replaced by the Stars and Stripes, the 13-star American flag, which we continue to fly here year-round at Bowling Green in honor of Evacuation Day, which in effect was the complete, the end of the American Revolution and the beginning of a new nation. Evacuation Day for many years was celebrated um, as the second most important patriotic day in America after Independence Day, mm-hmm. and it lost favor as a celebration as we once again became close to the British, particularly um, in the 20th century with the two world wars. But uh, it's an important day. So I, the way I describe the American Revolution, in many ways, it both began mm-hmm. and ended at Bowling Green. And you mentioned something a while back, and um, I hope you'll be willing to talk about this now, because we're rapidly running out of time. We have a few minutes left. What is the deal with the Charging Bull statue at uh, Bowling Green? Well, that is one of my proudest achievements. Um, it totally and, and again, let's talk about Charging Bull in the, in the context of what had been. Think about that. A Bowling Green was the most hated statue in the history of America, which was the statue of the King of England here that was known throughout the colonies. All right? And hundreds of years later, what do we have? We have the most admired, loved statue in America, assume, you know, sculpture other than the Statue of Liberty itself, of course, uh, here at Bowling Green. What happened was in 1989, at Christmas time, Arturo de Modica, who I did not know at that time at all, um, as a as a sort of a, a a positive, joyous sort of a Christmas gift to the people of New York, decided to put the new statue, which he had created, this huge, larger than life, three and a half ton statue of a bull, under the tree at the New York Stock Exchange, and and that quickly got removed. We don't have time to go into all the details, which are fascinating, but anyway, after it was removed, I found out Arturo's name in a newspaper and uh, the New York Post, which did a cover story about the removal of the bull, and I called. He was found, he was, had a studio and lived in Manhattan, and I told him I thought there was another great place for the bull to stand permanently, which he said he really wanted, which is a place to make this as a gift to the city permanently, not under the tree on Broad Street. And I then called then Mayor Koch, who I was fairly friendly with by then, called him at home on a Saturday night and said, I just met with Arturo de Modica. He came down here. He loves that unused plaza at the north end of Bowling Green as a place to to place Charging Bull as a permanent gift to the city of New York. Um, Mayor Koch said to me, he said, look, I have to get in touch with Mayor Ed Koch, see if it's okay with him. He called Mayor Ed Koch, said, I have no problem. That's a great idea. Henry got back to me. He said, let's do it. And and just days later, on December 20th, 1989, I, I, I remember it vividly and always will, you know, Charging Bull arrived here. It was placed exactly on the spot where it still stands today. And we had a big ceremony. The street was closed off. Um, Commissioner Stern was here. We had a big crowd. And the popularity of Charging Bull has just grown. This is the 30th anniversary coming up this December 20th. Uh, tens of millions of people have visited. There is not a moment, literally, during the day, certainly during the day and late into the night, that there is not a crowd surrounding Charging Bull. It is just one of the great gifts to the city of New York in our entire history, and I am so happy and proud that it's Mm -hmm. here at Bowling Green. Let me ask you about you. Um, You put out a lot of videos uh, in in terms of people finding out more information about uh, Bowling Green. What's the deal with that? Well, what the deal with that is that, and and again, another something that I feel rightfully proud of, um, I became familiarized myself with video 
about a decade or more ago. Um, and, you know, I realized that we do these different events. We have these celebrations. We have, you know, of, of the, the history of the... It's just Bowling Green, and I also obviously feel involvement with all of Lower Manhattan, that what a wonderful way to have a permanent record. I mean, when, we, when, when, when you have an event, when you have a celebration, when you have an historical happening, the event, all right, people are there, and then it's just like a fading memory. Now, with these well over 100 videos that I have done of Lower Manhattan, most of them specific to Bowling Green, but not all of them, this is a record that will always exist. In other words, it's, uh, in fact, many ways when I when I'm, I'm putting together an event and having an event, I almost feel like it's like it's, it's a matter of filming it for the purposes of making a permanent record, like making a film. You know, this is the script, and this is where the we are acting this out so that we create a permanent record. of things. The plaque is a perfect example. Um, on September 6th, you know, that was a wonderful thing we did when we put that plaque and unveiled that plaque, and we had magnificent speakers there. If I hadn't videotaped it, and then edited a video, which is online now and, uh, and will always be there, you know, it would just be mm-hmm. a memory. And so I think video is powerful. Sure. There is no other collection of video of any other particular area of Manhattan with this kind of character. And it, it's, it's just, it's like, I'm, I'm so happy because it is a permanent record and it will always be available. Yep. How do you access it or how do people access that? The um, the best way is you can say uh, Lower Manhattan History and More YouTube. If you do a Google search, Lower Manhattan History and More, um, or or you can say or you can say mm-hmm. YouTube Arthur Piccolo. I mean, you can tell you a number of related things. YouTube Bowling Green Association. Try any number of combinations, but it will bring you to that YouTube channel where you will find. Um, over a hundred videos that I have made over the last about eight years. There's a fascinating mm. collection. All of the subjects we have talked about are covered one way or another, plus there's a lot of other material uh, that we didn't have a chance to cover um, during this conversation. Of course, September 11, 2001 is a day that all of us in America remember in, in Lower Manhattan. Were you there? at You, ha- you say you're Bowling well, Green Association? Interestingly enough, I was, yes, I was here. I was here, and, you know, I, I, I was in my office and, you know, heard this, I, I mean, a plane right overhead, it just it was, seemed unnatural, and then, I, and then there was this crash, and all of what I remember is all of so many car alarms going off as a result of the shockwave from it. But that was a day that I was scheduled to go up and, and look at, we used to put up, I don't do it anymore, can't get into details there, but huge Christmas trees, some of them as large as, the tree. I told you this is how this Bowling Green Association started in uh, 1986 with a Christmas tree. And we had got to a point where putting up very large Christmas trees, some years larger and as large as Rockefeller Center. But that day I was scheduled to go and look for trees up north of New York City as possible candidates that year. And as a result, I, I I, after the, 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 the planes, I looked up, and it did not appear, appear bad, but not quite. I had no, no idea that the buildings were going to collapse, all right? Mm. Um, and so I got in the subway, which was still running regularly, went up to 86th Street to meet my contact to go up north, never made it. Of course, at that point, you know, it was, it was hell. Uh, but the point I want to make, if I may, that there was a urban legend developed after the towers fell and all that death and destruction, that there were bars of silver and gold buried under the towers, you know, and it kept showing up in articles. And I was 
interested in that fact. And finally, it turned out to be true. At the beginning of November, after you know, so much of the debris had been, there was a vault under the towers that was a depository of the Bank of Nova Scotia of bars and gold and silver. And they were finally removed um, in November. And I made contact with the, with the Bank of Nova Scotia and said, look, I would like you to donate some of the silver. I would like to honor the over 400 firemen and police officers who were killed by making silver angel ornaments and make those the ornaments on the tree in 2001. And then when we were finished, we would etch a name of each one of those heroes and and put them in a nice box and send out the angels to those families. And that's exactly what we were able to do. Um, Bank of Nova Scotia did donate the silver, and we had these 427, I believe, these large angel, two-dimensional angel figures were the decorations for the 2001 tree in their honor. And then after the tree came down, the, the angels were repolished. They were, they were etched with the names, and we sent them to the families. You've been listening to the Historians Podcast. Our guest, Arthur Piccolo, chairman of the Bowling Green Association in Lower Manhattan. I'm Bob Cudmore.